over the years, since uh, around about 1910, it had been a, a church that had really been on fire for the gospel, for what Jesus had done for them. So much so that 15 people, 15 people from that uh, church had gone on to do theological study and end up as missionaries. And uh, you, some of you know um, Norma Briggs. Uh, she was uh, one of those uh, people. And uh, others uh, ended up uh, in pastoral ministry and as deaconesses. So a very powerful work of the gospel was carried out in that particular uh, church. But over the years, they'd had some uh, tough times. They'd had a, a couple of pastors who um, uh, didn't work out so well. And uh, so the congregation had gone from about 170 people uh, down to about 30 or 40. And uh, my, I, was, I and my wife were sent there to try and rebuild the congregation. These people were hurting. They'd had a tough time. They'd really been through the mill, but they were hanging in there. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do? How am I going to preach the Word of God? What am I going to preach? So that the people might be encouraged. And I remember two of my lecturers in uh, seminary uh, had uh, recommended a book each. They had recommended those to me. And one of them was a book by Graham Goldsworthy which, uh, in which he teaches you how to preach uh, the Old Testament uh, in a way that honours Christ. The other book uh, that was recommended to me was a book called The Grace Awakening. Now, I don't know if you've heard of that book, The Grace Awakening, by Charles Swindle. Who's heard of Charles Swindle? Yeah, many of you have. A wonderful Bible teacher. And uh, those two books, but in particular, this book, The Grace Awakening, uh, shaped my ministry to these people who did not need to be uh, hammered into the ground. They needed to be encouraged and built up. And so, what I'm about to say today, if you pick up the book, The Grace Awakening, you are going to say, after reading through it, aha, I see where Norm got most of his material for the sermon today. It is a, a wonderful book and really makes you rethink what it means to be saved by God's grace, what it means to live by God's grace and what it means to know that in a coming day we will be with him by God's grace. And I don't know what kind of uh, situation you're facing uh, in your life. You might be sailing along fine. You may have some difficulties. And I pray that today you will be encouraged because of what the Word of God has to say. Have you uh, ever felt that uh, since you became a Christian, you've been duty-bound to be obedient to God? That's your duty. And if you said yes, then you're right. For all of creation owes obedience to God, for he created us. But what motivates us? What motivates us to obey Jesus? 
Now, many people believe uh, that God's favor on them after they become Christians is based upon how well they are living the Christian life. And when people believe that, they are in effect saying, I've been saved by God's grace and not because of my good deeds, but now that I'm a Christian, to be a continuing recipient of God's grace, I need to please God by the way I live. Now the motivation in this case for obedience is a desire to receive God's blessing. And if this is what people believe, then they declare in effect that salvation by God's grace is a free gift, but God's grace doesn't affect their lives again until they are glorified with Jesus in a coming day. It's a bit like saying, I did not deserve to be saved, but I'm glad that I am. I don't deserve to be glorified Jesus in a coming day, but I'm pleased that I will be. But unless I institute a rigorous regime of reading my Bible, praying, teaching Sunday school, always doing good deeds, fulfilling the expectations of other Christians and live without fail in a special way, maybe a Christ-like way all the time, I will be out of favor with God from the time I became Christian till the time I die. Now those things I mentioned before are good. Oh, well, most of them are good. Don't worry about fulfilling the, the expectations of other Christians because the only person you need to uh, please, uh, of course, is our God. But praying, teaching your Sunday school, reading your Bible, doing good deeds and living in a Christ-like way are good things to do as a Christian. But will you be out of favor with God until the time you die if you have some hiccups along the way? Does God save us by his grace? Does God glorify us by his grace? But leave us hanging on our own with doubts and fears about the certainty of our salvation and ongoing favor with God in the in-between times? Of course not. But that's what many Christians think. Therefore, that is what motivates them to serve Jesus. And so they strive to serve God, not because they are grateful, but because they fear the possible loss of their salvation if they do not. Now there is a, a, another one of those statements that allows you, now here, here's another one of those statements that allows you to go to sleep for the rest of the service. If you promise to commit what I'm about to say to memory. Listen to this. The entire Christian life, from start to finish, is lived on the basis of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ. I'll repeat that. The entire Christian life, from start to finish, is lived on the basis of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ. Now, if you've got that, you can go to sleep. But I'll probably ask you afterwards if I see you snoozing. What was that I said you needed to commit to memory? We are saved from the consequences of our sins by grace. 
we grow to be more like Jesus by God's grace. We receive both earthly and spiritual blessings by God's grace. We are motivated to obedience by God's grace. We are called to serve by God's grace. We receive strength to endure trials by God's grace. And finally, we will get to heaven by God's grace. At no point is your salvation dependent upon your good works. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. At no point are you dependent upon your good works to be a recipient of God's favor in that period after you become a Christian. For Jesus alone has earned that for you. Jesus alone has earned that for you. If I beat you round the head with the scriptures and threaten you with penalties and gloom and doom unless you do this or that for God, then I'm a law driver. Then I'm a legalist. And I'm oppressive. But if I'm a preacher of grace, I will encourage you to develop an obsession with Christ and His ways by telling you of God's grace and His goodness and compassion shown to us in Jesus Christ. God doesn't want unwilling obedience and reluctant service. He wants joyful and enthusiastic service based on gratitude. God searches your heart. He searches my heart. And He understands every motive. Motives that are acceptable to Him spring from a love for Him and a desire to glorify Him. Obedience to God is based, is based upon... Is obedience to God based on a fear of the consequences or to stay in favor with God is not pleasing to Him. Therefore, our good works are not truly good unless they are motivated by a love for God and a desire to glorify Him. But we, we can't have such a Godward motivation if we think that we must earn God's favor by our obedience or if we fear that we may forfeit God's favor by our disobedience. Such a works-oriented motivation is essentially self-serving. It's prompted more by what we think we can gain or lose from God rather than by a grateful response to the grace He has already given us through Jesus Christ. Living under the grace of God instead of under a sense of duty frees us from such a self-serving motivation. It frees us to obey God and serve Him as a loving and thankful response to Him for our salvation and for blessings already guaranteed to us by His grace. Consequently, a heartfelt grasp of God's grace, far from creating an indifferent or careless attitude within us, will actually provide us with the only motivation that is pleasing to Him.
only when we are thoroughly convinced that the Christian life is entirely of grace are we able to serve our God out of a grateful and loving heart. When Rachel read to us uh, earlier, she read this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and it's verse 9, and it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Paul was encouraging the Corinthian Christians in this text to follow up on a commitment they had made to give an offering of money to the Macedonian church. They were in trouble. They were poverty-stricken. And so Paul was encouraging the Corinthian Christians to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ. This applies to every area of a Christian service and not in just in regard to our offerings on a Sunday morning. Paul was not laying a guilt trip on the Corinthian church. Rather, he wanted them to give generously from a sense of gratitude for God's grace toward them. He wanted people to give of themselves not from a sense of duty, not from a sense of compulsion, but cheerfully as a loving response for what God had already given them in Jesus Christ. If you give your money, your time, your life in Christ's service because you feel as if it's your duty, then God is at best disappointed. But if you give as a joyful response, for what he has done for you through the sacrifice of Jesus, he is pleased. What is more pleasurable for you? I'm going to bring this down to our level so that we can understand it. What's more pleasurable for us? That our loved ones do things for us because they have to? Or that your loved ones do things for you because they love you? Surely, it's the second. God delights in a loving response from the heart. So then we need to make sure that we do things for the right reasons. This verse teaches us about the knowledge of grace by believers. The verse says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. No person who believes that Jesus Christ died for them would deny the truth of that statement. This is something about which the Corinthian believers were fully acquainted, and it's true for us as well. We know about the grace of Jesus Christ intellectually because it's been proclaimed to us from the Scriptures, and we read about it this morning. We know it also from experience. Our guilt has been removed. We no longer lie in bed at night worried about whether our sins are going to send us to hell or not. We have experienced through the sacrificial death of Jesus unmerited, spontaneous love. This verse also teaches us about the demonstration of grace to believers. It says, Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor that you through his poverty 
might become rich. Let's look at those words for a moment. Here was someone who was rich, immensely rich. At his disposal was the, uh, was the wealth of the universe. At his disposal was the wealth of heaven. It's mind-boggling, beyond description. And yet he left it all as he gave himself for us. I want to give you an imperfect illustration of what it might have been like for Jesus, the creator, coming to live in his creation. The Bible tells us everything that was created was created through him. Imagine this. You build, you're a farmer, and you build a nice new pigsty. Everything's brand new, perfect, clean as a whistle. The pigs move in, and hello, it's not long before it's a real mess. And then you do something almost unbelievable. You move in, and you take up residence in that pigsty as well. Can you imagine how unpleasant that would be for you? Surely it must have been much worse for Jesus who had always been holy and completely separate from the filth of sin. He created the perfect world, but Adam and Eve sinned. And by that action polluted creation in a far worse way than pigs could ever pollute a brand new pigsty. And then Jesus does something simply amazing. Even though his creation was polluted with the terrible offense of sin, he comes to rescue us from the consequences of our sin. I'm impressed that the verse of Scripture doesn't say, for you know the obligation or the duty of the Lord Jesus Christ, or you know the, the sense of duty and compulsion of Jesus Christ. No, Paul only mentions grace. When our Lord Jesus left heaven, he didn't leave gritting his teeth and clenching his fists, shouting, okay, okay, I'll go, I don't want to go, but I'll go. Those people down there, they deserve everything they're getting. I don't want to go, I'm not going. wasn't obligation. It was grace that motivated him to come. It was grace that brought him to Bethlehem as a little baby. It was grace that allowed his hands and feet to be pierced with nails. It was grace that caused him to say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And this grace is our motivation to live for him. As we grow in our understanding of the grace of Jesus toward us, so we will want to live for him more and more. So as we have received grace, let us demonstrate grace to God and to others. And as we grow in grace this way, we will grow in our motivation
to obey him from a sense of gratitude and reverence. Our obedience in this life is always going to be imperfect in regard to performance. We will never perfectly obey Jesus until we are made perfect by him in a coming day. Our motives will never be consistently pure, but let us begin to move toward being motivated by God's grace to us. Let us think daily about the implications of the grace of God in our lives. And let us ask God to motivate us by the mercy and love of Jesus. When we recognize self-serving motivation at work in ourselves, may we renounce it and cast ourselves completely on the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ. As we grow in grace this way, we will indeed discover that the love of Jesus compels us to live, not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again for us, and who is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for us. I'm going to say something that might sound a little strange as I finish, and that's this. Dwell upon the grace of Jesus to you. Then do as you please. Does that make sense? This is not saying go out and commit every sin possible. No. Dwell on the grace of Jesus to you. May this be the overwhelming thought pattern of your life. And then go and do as you please. And what will that be? It will be to serve Jesus. If you are so taken up with Jesus and all that he's done for you, your desire will be to serve him. So after the contemplation of the grace of Jesus toward us, surely it will be our greatest pleasure to live lives of obedience for his sake. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Father, we do thank you that you love us and that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. And we thank you for this expression of his love for us. That as he hung there on the tree, he became the most sinful person this planet has ever known as our sins were placed upon him and you judged him on our behalf. Father, we thank you for the love that has been displayed toward us, that we now can call ourselves sons and daughters of the living God because of your grace toward us. And we pray today that we might be true servants of yours, that we might seek to reflect the life of Christ in our own lives, that we might honor and glorify you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Um, amen.